0: all of us here have voices and we have to speak our voice and we have to let our voices be heard and we can't let someone just say well we hear about hear from you later so for me i came up that way my dad had always said to me you know you
1: have to say what you feel you have to when you say what you feel long as you're not hurting people you have to be you have to stand up what you feel is right I'm Garrett McQueen and I'm Scott Blankenship
2: and this is Triloquy the revolutionary classical music podcast first and foremost this is also the podcast that takes two swings one, one of these days we're going to share the take ones of these
1: openings you want the false start you want the real false starts and outtakes
2: but that, that's what we, they used to talk about in band class all the time in middle school and high school act like this is the second time <laughs> when, when the band director would start he would always all say right. yes. <laughs> shout out to Mr. Turner and shout out to y'all thank you so much for coming back to this 88th opus of Triloquy returning listeners thank you so much thank you for your continued support to the new listeners new folks coming along. This is a revolutionary podcast, I believe anyway. I'm in a revolutionary mood this week thinking about all the black history I've been learning. Scott, I know it's hard with everything going on in the world to really feel juiced and pumped, but surely there's there's some light at the end of this gray tunnel of COVID and and minus Cajillion degrees that's pushing you through
1: there is um some music that i'm going to talk about came through in a new york times article just shouting out uh some artists that are sort of flooding the market with music by black composers and black musicians um so that's exciting and also uh, i want to touch on a, a story that showed up in the la sentinel about making more black history.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Before we get into that, though, a little bit of heist housekeeping. This Opus of Triloquy is made possible in part by the Opera Philadelphia channel, where you can watch Save the Boys, the latest world premiere from Tyshawn Sori, countertenor John Holiday and pianist Grant Lanik bring the timely words of abolitionist Francis Ellen Watkins' Harper to life in the first work of the Opera Philadelphia channel's digital commission series, Harper's Poem Save the Boys inspired Sori to write a musical response to the ongoing violence against black men and women across the United States. Sori says it reflects on daily life experiences as black Americans and the day-to-day precarity in which we continue to live. The Digital Commission series continues through April with world premieres by Courtney Bryan, Angelica Negron, and Caroline Shaw. You can also still stream Sori's Cycles of My Being. Cycles of My Being is a series Song cycle that explores the realities of being a black man in America today, starring world renowned tenor Lawrence Brownlee and with lyrics by Brownlee and acclaimed poet Terrence Hayes. Save the Boys and Cycles of My Being are available now on demand on the Opera Philadelphia channel. Rent them or discover everything the channel has to offer with a season pass at Opera That's opera P H I L A dot. TV. Scott, when I read that and I look at those names, you know, I see Courtney Bryan, uh, a, a guest for Triloquy coming up uh, in March next mm-hmm. month as we uh, celebrate women, uh, especially next month. on Angelica Negron, you know, I could, not, not on this Opus of Triloquy, but uh, one of these days I'll tell the story of how I first came um, on their music and, you know, just, just the revolutionary, revolutionary things happening there. And of course, Caroline Shaw, we've uh, definitely covered We've talked on on a a, few occasions. So yeah, yeah, shout out to Opera Philadelphia
1: Mm. for really being a part uh, of this change that I think the arts is finally beginning to see. Triloquy is also supported by Unclassified. Unclassified curates classical music playlists for moments and themes, including music for study, sleep, discovering new composers, or just vibing with your friends. Unclassified's profile and playlists are available on major streaming platforms including Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, Amazon Music, and more. Discover classical music at unclassified.com. Shout out to everyone over there at
2: Unclassified. So much stuff going on, Scott, in the arts and in classical music. I don't know if... Uh, the concert halls by and large are open and back up but we're definitely seeing some movement anyway it really shows you what can happen if we're all organized right and we all just adapt to this uh, new, the new new digital the world new, yeah the new normal yeah yeah. Um, a couple other quick announcements I want to give a shout out to the Illharmonic Orchestra uh, they have an upcoming concert that you can buy your tickets for um, and get more information on on the Triloquy website I have a button there at Triloquy There is a very special event this coming Friday, February 19th. February, (laughs) I had to count. This Friday uh, that I'm recording, this February 19th, 2021, International Society for Black Musicians is going to have a Black Content Creators summits and cool. meetings. So really um, looking forward to that. And uh, there's also uh, some big news from the Black Music Experience. Um, they have uh, a new recording from the Rise Orchestra dropping this Friday uh, on the Black Music Experience, uh, a link to all of those things in uh, the description of this opus. Scott, uh, the downbeat today comes from Wyoming Atias. Do you know that name? Do you know who uh, she was? So um, I'm not going to talk about it during... The opus, but basically, HBO Max has gotten me into the documentaries. And one of the documentaries I watched was called Freedom Fists, which, of course, highlights Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who at the 1968 Olympics down in Mexico City held up their fists during Mm -hmm. the uh, national anthem in in Black Power. Well, during that same Olympics, a woman named Maomi Atias. Set a record um, for the 100 uh, meter dash, a black woman who not only set a world record, but was the first person to maintain that uh, that that medal. What do they What do you call it when you win a medal and the next year you win it again, retain like retain the uh,
1: the the title? I'm not, I'm not familiar with it, but okay.
2: Well, she was she was the first person uh, to do that, so I just wanted to uh, shout that out. I've been saying that to everyone. Uh, All the presentations I've been doing. There's so much black history that falls through the cracks, especially when it comes to black women. So um, a huge shout out and a great honor to Wyoming Atias. Also, shout out to Edith McGuire, um, who was there with her during uh, the 1960s fighting the good fight um, as Black Olympic uh, champions. Um, And then, of course, uh, as in every opus, we will have a Triloquy in the fourth movement. We're going to be going from Boston to Washington, D.C., down to Texas, a few stops in the final movement. Mm. uh, Nothing but incredible guests on the Triloquy podcast. Today's guest is Bill Doggett, a lecturer, a historian, an artist manager, who is really doing incredible, incredible things to make sure that we're keeping history, alive black history in the arts and across american history in general so really looking forward to sharing that conversation with you in the third movement today but uh for now we'll get into movement one
1: I've got just a couple sort of announcements, sort of accidentals. First, very quickly, sharp next to the fact I don't know if you heard this that D'Angelo is hinting at a new album, and he's also going to be on verses.
2: The R and B, the R and B singer DeAngelo. How does yep. it feel, D'Angelo? Yep. yep. His body doesn't look like, the, like that anymore. No shade. We, we've all changed during COVID. I'm just we? <laughs> excited about new D'Angelo
1: music, and you always talk about verses, so he's going to yep. uh, go up against friends, I guess. You know, against friends. Hmm, I'm unfamiliar. I'll have to look it up. And a flat next to my rest in peace from Mary Wilson. She was an original member of the Supremes. And even after the Supremes broke up, she continued to tour and still perform Supremes music under that name. And the thing that's really just heartbreaking about it is she was talking about releasing some new material just next month. And she died in her sleep. It was heart failure, 79 years old. So uh, rest in peace to Mary Wilson.
2: It's interesting that you bring up D'Angelo and Mary Wilson, two different looks at R&B music. A couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe just through text, I sent you um, maybe a, a Maxwell, or maybe you know the song by Maxwell. This is Woman's Work, which mm-hmm. is actually mm-hmm. a cover of something, I, and I didn't Kate, know that. Kate Bush. Yeah. yeah. So you're know, all of these different R and B aesthetics over the years, over the ages. Is that something that you feel like you've been able to uh, keep up with? Because talking about the Supremes and talking about D'Angelo, and then you know, of course, we're bringing in Maxwell. It seems very different. But it's all in that same family, just a generational difference. I just
1: feel like I, you know, I feel like I can make a few connections to the past like this. I feel that's one of the things that I have a little bit of a knack for here on the podcast. But uh, it's important to have that link mm-hmm. to some of these things historically. Because, you know, we, uh, we featured Rasan Roland Kirk right. just last weekend. Last week, and then and then here he is. His music featured on uh, Judas and the Black Messiah that right. we're going to talk about later. Yeah, so I just you know I just feel like I'm a conduit to the past. <laughs> were there
2: <laughs> were there like Supremes albums playing in the in the house or or, or what? It, or, or what? What do you remember your earliest connections to?
1: Just the radio. It was uh-huh. yeah. It was on. Um, well, it wouldn't have been oldies radio then. It, it would, have would have been, have been nowies. Radio. Yeah, it would have been. <laughs> you know, the the regular old pop music. And, you know, of course, there was loads of Saturday, mo- you know, American Bandstand, you know, we would see all those repeats. Sure, th- they were all must the place. Man, that you just... And maybe I should say you make it
2: sound, but just in general, not even having been alive, there is this sort of nostalgia for me, a, a fantasy nostalgia around getting in the car and cutting on the radio with this big old dial that you have to get just right. And you hear music <laughs> like the Supremes on, and you're going to the gas station where, you know, it's 75 cents a gallon or whatever y'all were paying back in the day.
1: That would have been 1986.
2: <laughs> yep. <laughs> but um, so, so just, just a way to, I, I know you put a flat. Next uh, to the transition of Mary Wilson I like, to, I like to do sharps Because it's about celebrating their lives And having these stories And these memories that we wouldn't have Without their contributions to, to music is there, a, is there a Supremes track uh, A specific track that you like to
1: share? I always love Where Did Our Love Go?
2: We get the older I get, the more we're gonna have to be saying goodbye to these greats. We lost another one since the last time we recorded the now late great Chick Korea. Mm-hmm. When you hear that name, what comes to mind? I know you have worked in uh in jazz as well, and I know a lot of the jazz yeah, people really well. He was honor. part
1: of the uh the first quintet with Miles, so that's some iconic recordings, every single one of them. in Spain, yeah, come on, I mean, that's just. That's humble just, just classic. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah you know, we, we talk about accompliceship a lot on this podcast, and uh, I'm thinking of uh, Ludvig Goransson, the uh, Swedish composer uh, that we've talked about a lot who has played who has uh, written for Black Panther and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. When I think about Chick Korea, that sort of idea comes to mind as well. Just someone who has been able to fully work and live and thrive in these black spaces. I don't think there would be any question as far as how Chick Corea feels about certain things that are going on in society, how he would have moved in those black spaces. Do you think it's fair to look at Chick Corea, you know, and we're in here in Black History Month, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do you think it's fair to look at Chick Corea as one of those accomplices, someone who was really all in when it comes to the codification and the nurturing of black music, black aesthetics?
1: Well, that's fair. Um, I, by virtue of the genre and the level that he reached in it, obviously he's going to come up against all the great black players as well, Right, you know, and, and there'll be recordings of them together. And so he, he's in the fabric of it. I'm, you know, um, I'm not going to say, uh, uh activist level was that is sure, that yeah but uh, of course he was a part of the the whole movement
2: yeah i i bring it up because there used you, you described him as in the fabric that's the uh the, the language you used you know when i think of in the fabric i think of the difference between walking on the path and talking about walking the path or even knowing what the path is chick korea was 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 really in it mm. and the more that people who are not black think about what they can do and how they can be infused in in this, you know, hundreds year struggle whether it's through music or or elsewhere really being in the fabric as you say is way more action than work uh, than word and chicoria was was definitely in there there's there's no denying that whatsoever you said uh Spain what was, was what you thought about what is it about the uh and and I've, I've had the opportunity to air the Spain concerto um, a lot. I think it has the spice that you need to really be something different. But I don't know. It, it wasn't about Chick Corea being different. It was just about Chick Corea writing from his perspective in that symphonic way.
1: And let's not forget about just the short little four and a half minute Chick Corea Spain, where uh, the first time I heard that had Al Jarreau <laughs> singing vocal on yeah. it. And, you know, to me, that was virtuosic on every level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which one do you think would be best to, to share with the folks today? Um, let's 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 bring Al in. Let's bring Al Giroux in.
0: I can remember the rain in December, the leaves of brown on the ground. In Spain, I did love and adore you. The nights filled with joy were our yesterdays and tomorrow.
2: On I get a of all, of all right, Scott, I'm going to talk about this movie and some of its music for a minute, but um, I, I think you have one more accidental uh, uh, an article that you saw from... Uh,
1: right, this showed up in the L.A. Sentinel, and the, uh, the headline is what caught my eye at first, celebrating black history, making more black history. Um, so... This article by Stacy M. Brown, it came out uh, just three days ago. She's quoting the uh, president and CEO of the National Newspaper Publishers Association. Benjamin F. Chavis, has always maintained a poetic theory. The best way to observe Black History Month is to make more black history. So the article goes on to talk about a lot of the things that we've already covered, um, which is the... Lack of diversity in classical music mm-hmm. across the whole landscape, and they start digging into uh, uh, something that the National Philharmonic did. Now, you know, uh, I, I said whoever programs the first all black season wins, yeah. So, this was months and months ago. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so uh, Half a point, I guess, to the National Philharmonic. They said that uh, they were trying to respond to the events of last summer, George Floyd's murder. They said 2020's tragedy, both COVID and the instances of violence against people of color by police and others, was a real call to action for the National Philharmonic. We completely revamped our season of music as a first step. In meeting this moment in history, and we recognize that the work has just begun. We have a lot more work to do as an organization. So uh, they put together a program that was all African-American uh, composers, William Grant Still, Florence Price, George Walker, and Melissa White. That was the last program that they were able to do with an audience in attendance.
2: I've collaborated since COVID and all of this stuff with the National Philharmonic, I did a, a a panel with them where we talked about some of these issues and taking those forward steps. And I have to apply, and it was in conjunction with the uh, pre-trial, pretrial Justice Institute, I should, um, I should note. So there were a lot of intersections between what does it mean to serve uh, the most broad black community, folks in jail, uh, keeping folks out of that school to prison pipeline, and you know, what the National Philharmonic's role in all of that could be. A really great conversation, uh, and, and I don't know if folks uh, remember if I talked about it on Triloquy, but as I left the panel, you know, There was a question about how can orchestras move forward or what's keeping orchestras from moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I was very uh, frank in talking about organizations being afraid to step against their sponsors or do something that makes the money pipeline people upset or or whatever. But as you say, this this looks pretty good. I mean, as even the National Philharmonic acknowledges a beginning I mean, and mm-hmm. just a part of the beginning, not barely the first, the first step, step for, right. but it's more than a lot of these other folks are
1: doing. Well, this article also points to the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, who has uh, worked on some uh, work to change this situation. Director Marin Alsop has been leading uh, a leading advocate for equity through the arts. But uh, what they were working on was trying to not put on a concert but rather an event, mm-hmm. and you think about: Is there transportation to get to the venue? Is there food that everyone can afford? Yeah. Uh, is there childcare? I mean, it's a lot. That, that I mean, that's but that's another piece that I don't think people think of that would make it more hospitable for everyone to come and and hear a concert.
2: And let's face it. I could really go and dig deep and find some tax paperworks and and call contacts about what the endowment of the National Philharmonic is, but I'm sure it's enough to pay for lunch and to pay for childcare and to pay for transportation. Excuse me. So, you know. I, I'm not here to, you know, to shit on the National Monarch because obviously some conversations are being had and some work is being done. But work, the work builds. It's all comprehensive. There's always something more to do. So, uh, shout out to them. We'll we'll link this in the uh, description of this. You mentioned Melissa White. Um, you know, big member of the Sphinx family, uh, Harlem Quartet, all of that. Uh, how about we listen to uh, a little bit of her as we get into this this next accidental. So as I mentioned, Scott, HBO Max is really knocking it out of the park. And getting your money. They are the new movie theater, it seems like. So if something comes out on screen somewhere for the folks who I guess want to, I I can't put my mind around putting on a mask and going and sitting in a the theater with all these folks for however many hours. And, you know, folks aren't really going to have their mask on, eating popcorn. I don't know. I'm, I'm doing my best not to be judgy, but the idea of folks just out and about like that just bothers me when there are half a million folks dead, you know?
1: Well, just yesterday was Valentine's Day and I saw people updating their social media with photos out to dinner, you know? So,
2: you see, the real ones like me and Dale. We we ordered McDonald's and called it a day. We love each other 365, so I'm, that's fine. I don't even remember. <laughs>
1: I, I'm having trouble remembering what I ate for dinner yesterday. I mean, I know I ate something, but I don't remember what.
2: Anyway, uh, getting getting off track here. Long story short, Judas and The Black Messiah came out on HBO Max last week, and everybody was talking about it. Dell and I sat down and watched it. I was changed, it's incredible. uh, The story of of Fred Hampton, a a Black Panther Party leader, and the informant, William O'Neill, who got him killed. Before Mm. I get into that, I wanna give a huge shout out and congratulations to Lady Jess, Jessica McJunkins, for being the uh, contractor and organizer um, of the score and the musicians for that. It feels good Scott to see this black centered stuff with contemporary orchestral symphonic music infused and to know the people putting it together we're 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 in the mix and it and it and it feels fun to be able to uh, to say that um, I was really excited watching Judas and the Black Messiah because right at the beginning of the the movie we heard some music that you brought up last week on triloquy right? I mean, it's I, I I think it's dope. What do you think about uh, listening to that music and thinking back to the music of uh, Rasan Roland Kirk Kirk, and you know, seeing that it has a contemporary place in, in in the in the culture, the discourse.
1: It makes me want to go back and find out what Rasan's politics were. I wanted to find out a little mm-hmm. bit more about you know what what direction he was coming from and. How he might have interacted if he was in the same room with some of these revolutionaries. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, for folks who don't know, this is this gets a sharp, obviously. So for folks who don't know, the movie is about an activist, a community organizer named Fred Hampton, who was uh, his group was infiltrated by a man named William O'Neill. So this is the story, Scott. William O'Neill. Got caught up into some crime to get out of his jail time. Uh, the FBI was like, "Okay, well, join this Black Panther party and and uh, get us all the information." It, it, it ultimately led to Fred Hampton being killed, leaving behind, by the way, um, an unborn child. You mm. know, um, at who you know, Fred Hampton Jr., Chairman Fred Hampton, as he's known today, is continuing the work. Um, but this story was originally told in a PBS documentary. Uh, that aired back, I think the year was uh, 1990, Uh, the informant William O'Neill had spent all these years in witness protection, finally spoke out, and uh, one of the questions that was asked to him, it showcased in the film, was, you know, what would you tell to your son about what you did? And his answer was, he was part of the struggle. And I wanted to, um, and and by the way, uh, before I uh, throw it to you, Scott, you know, after the documentary came out, um, William O'Neill died by suicide, so I guess watching it and really thinking about what he did as far as standing in the way of black liberation was just too much for him Mm -hmm. to handle and he uh, ended his life but I think it was interesting for him to frame it as being part of the struggle because again from his perspective he didn't have much of a choice he could spend years in jail for an attempted uh, car burglary or he could work with the FBI and maybe get paid and maybe have another beginning if he gives up Another one of the brothers. What do you what, what do you, what do you think about that situation? It must be a, a
1: really sticky one to be in. I can't even put my I can't even put myself in those shoes. Um, it's it would it would be totally new. How would I and there identify? Are,
2: and there are a lot of people. I, I watch interviews with members of the uh, the Black Panther Party, the former Black Panther Party, talking about other. There were a lot of FBI informants, people who thought their friends were their friends but they were really working for the fbi and the way that they were really able to to get in there and infiltrate in that way i mean scott it would be like i am informing the fbi on the weed you smoke or whatever i don't know i mean how, how would surely you would be pissed at me but i mean let's I, th- <laughs> I i think that it would be pretty low on their priority list of course obviously but i'm just giving but, as as an example of how personal the relationships felt
1: Sure. And yet
2: it was uh, false.
1: I know, but I mean, that, again, that just makes me feel like it's something torn from the headlines. It's, it's a movie or a, or, a, or a soap opera, something that is so outlandish, I would never experience that. Who's, who's going to rat me out?
2: <laughs> well, let's flip the script. Let's say Maho Teppery really gets going and the FBI starts to look at me as far as inciting violence and, oh, he's trying to get the blacks militarized. If they came to you with some money or they were like, well, actually, we looked back in your paperwork and you did this and technically you owe us three years in jail. Maybe it's taxes. Maybe it's just something obscure. You know they can find something if they want to. But for, let, let's acknowledge that they can find something if they want to. So if they did, okay, and they were like, instead of paying, just give us the information on Garrett. Maybe even draw a blueprint of his place so when we come and and kill him, we know where to go. I mean, that would be rough,
1: would it not? I would say you are so full of it. You that my you accustomed to be out good. My <laughs> whole background is so bland. <laughs> you can't even tell me. Oh well, we have something you haven't thought about. No, you don't.
2: You can't even pretend. Off okay, my pretend. Porch.
1: Pretend. Pretend for us for a second. I, all right. What am I pretending? I'm sorry.
2: I got animated a little bit. Uh, you're you're pretending that the FBI has something on you, and they're asking you to rat me out. <laughs> and you got years in jail, or you got ratting me out.
1: Um. There, there's. Uh, I, I can't rat anybody out. I'd, I'd have to. I'd have to take it. I'd have to go to jail. That's how. That's how I feel. And now it's really easy to armchair quarterback. Well, that's what I was just about to address.
2: That's what I was just about to say. It is easy to armchair quarterback that, but there are so many rappers and other black leaders who sat down in jail and did that time. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the culture surrounding "Don't Snitch," right? You know, and that's a real thing. There are a lot of people who went to jail instead of doing what
1: what william o'neill did sure i mean i've binged watched the sopranos enough to you know to to get that spirit of you know you don't you don't rat out your friends you don't do that and i would never be able to live with myself i would not be able to i i would end up bumping myself off if i didn't get killed for something i said it's very it's a very poignant
2: film i I highly highly recommend one of the other things i scribbled down here is scott uh black trauma is all they give us. You know, they with there in all of the black movies, we have to deal with the trauma of it all. And I asked myself, could there be the story about the great white accomplice, the white informant that's helping the black people? I mean, is, is it there or do they is this, I'm sure the story is there. We started they just in Django. don't know. They they just don't want to. Well, I suppose so. Yeah, and he went all the way to death, didn't he? He let Leonardo DiCaprio shoot him. He and couldn't Leonardo resist. Leonardo DiCaprio was a motherfucker in that movie. Couldn't too. resist. Sometimes I feel like these white actors enjoy saying the n word on on set. I can't see where that would be at all good (laughs) I know some of them just say it you can tell they Mm -mm. just mm. Anyway, not not necessarily about Leonardo DiCaprio I'm saying but anyway um, highly record highly recommend this film Um, really digging into the history that isn't always told again we we talk about um, Huey P Newton I'm sure you know that name and of course Malcolm X not a member of the Black Panther Party but another one of these so-called black radicals who history um, shines a light on Mm. not always that way for Fred Hampton so I'm glad that this is out again I'm glad that music and and uh, today's black musicians were a part of it again shout out to Jessica McJunkins. uh two of the uh, tracks that I wanted folks to be sure to check out listen of course listen to the soundtrack but also the score there's one tune on there called Bill is recognized and it just offers that you know cool jazzy feeling that reminds me of an old black film you know, Scott, there's just that that general aesthetic that makes you think, okay, I'm about to see black people with afros and bell mm-hmm. bottoms. Maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's, you know, something fun. But just that, you know, that tint of music. That's one Bill is recognized. But my other favorite um, from uh, the soundtrack, from the score, rather, is called We Got a Rat. So last week, Scott, we were talking more about the contemporary music and, and those aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate that. that's continuing to move forward as we look back to the past applying contemporary black aesthetics uh, to the to the whole project I think is phenomenal I really love this one and I know it's some people would call this a piece of crunchy contemporary uh, classical music but I think it's the direction we're going certainly when we talk about film scores and even beyond so here's a little bit of uh, we got a rat to transition us into movement two.
1: Garrett, kind of uh, trying to keep on the uh, same sentiment as that article from LA Sentinel that I brought in for the first movement, Uh, I found another one from from the New York Times. Three new albums retell the history of black composers. Um, Lara Downs has released a new EP on her brand new digital label. Uh, One of the things the article talks about is how getting a recording contract doesn't necessarily mean you've made it anymore and that you're not going to get a bunch of money and all Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So uh, Lara started that as an effort to capitalize on all the digital means that we're able to record, transfer, and then distribute yeah, shout music. Out to her, so, yeah. so she has a uh, a new Florence Price EP out. The Catalyst Quartet did a whole survey of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, mm-hmm. and uh, then there is also Will Livermore uh, put together Dreams of a New Day, which is just art songs. You know, so uh, definitely check those out if you're looking for something new. But uh, I had to take a different direction for what I wanted to actually listen to because recently um I've been losing track of time, <laughs> and so I have to do things uh, on a calendar, and yeah. one of them is cook. Shout out to Delaney from Classically Black Podcast. She's been posting her Blue Apron recipes, and I've been watching them because I do Blue Apron mm-hmm. too. But I've been putting on different pieces of music when I cook to try to take me somewhere. Sure. And um, I was listening to some guitar music, and I thought about you hearing that certain slide or twang mm-hmm. from a guitar and you feel like you have to turn around and leave the bar?
2: As I said last week, I feel like I'm hearing the er, the, the word that ends with er. Okay, so my <laughs> my
1: my heart goes out to you because so many traditional slide blues artists are black, you know, mm-hmm. the whole Delta blues thing alone. And so I, I set out to try to find someone, uh, a, a black guitarist that I could use to inspire you. And I yeah. thought, I, I found uh, Yasmeen Williams, and in her picture she's holding the guitar on her lap and so I thought she was playing it lap steel sure but no she's a finger style of her own design so she'll play on the fretboard with her left hand and then like sometimes with her right hand she's playing the kalimba Mm -hmm. or using a bow or uh, you know doing some uh, hammer-ons and pull-offs with her right hand really this is a style of her own devising sometimes even using A mallet but the one that I wanted to bring in here for you to uh, really pay attention to is called Gitka and this is the one where she's playing with the left hand on the fingerboard kalimba with the right So it's not slide. One of these days, I am going to find a slide artist that I want to bring into you. Mm-hmm. But it was a happy coincidence for me to stumble onto uh, uh, Yasmin's YouTube presence. She's also on Spotify. But you gotta watch her do it. Yeah. Um, it's I I the the closest. Artist that I could find that plays like she does is Stanley Jordan, where he'll play on two different guitars with each hand. You know, some of it's MIDI and all that. But yeah, look at Yasmeen's stuff. She's got a, a brilliant style. It'll really warm you
2: up. Yasmeen Williams, black women out here in illuminating me on guitar. I don't know why guitar is just the last instrument that i made it to as far as thinking about repertoire and I mean back in my previous uh, previous previous radio job in Tennessee classical guitar never really made it through what what I remember most uh, what stands out in my mind when uh, the lead singer of the cranberries and you'll have to help me when she passed away mm-hmm. what's her name? Dolores. When, Dol- Dolores O'Riordan. When she passed away uh, back in 2018, I remember uh, I started my show that day with a solo guitar rendition of "Zombie," mm-hmm. I believe. Um, so, I- anyway, I'm I'm glad to be learning about more guitar music because it's, it's it's just what I did not make it to. And of course, black black people been playing the guitar since the beginning, just like you know, Yasmine Williams is doing in her own way. So, and it's
1: also a response to that article from the New York Times about just the the sheer number of ways right. that you can get. Music. Music now, and what, a, and like I said, just what a happy coincidence to stumble onto Yasmin's feed. Absolutely. Well,
2: the the tune that um, I wanted to bring in for this movement this week that uh, I spent a bit of time with. I was listening to a lot of music this week, but I did a. Uh, I've been doing a lot of projects and a lot of consulting uh, with folks at this point. Really diving into the differences between a BIPOC initiative and a Black initiative, mm. and being really intentional about that language. And there was a, a project that I saw that was a spin-off of a tune made famous by Nina Simone the tune young gifted and black mm-hmm. okay what, I, I I thought about that song a lot and listened to it a lot uh, this uh, this week because it didn't say young gifted and black Person of color. It didn't say, and no shade. (laughs) No, but it says young, gifted, and black. And as we think about all of these diversity initiatives, even that word diversity, we're already getting to the point to where we're losing the point of why this discourse was heightened last summer. In the last place, we aren't dealing with a reality where police are killing people of color. They're killing black people. Now, the police are violent to everybody. Even the whites, you know, Mm -hmm. if you ask me, you don't even have to look that hard to see that. But we have to I think we have to remain focused, understanding, you know, America's original sin when it comes to race and how that manifests today and really not being afraid to affirm solidarity, allyship and even accompliceship with blackness and black liberation. So when I think about all of the movies and documentaries, you know, we were talking about Fred Hampton, Judas and the Black uh, Messiah, mm-hmm. all, all of this history they they talk about. I think about saving, saving those stories and making sure that we preserve them for the future. And these days, in the year 2021, to be young, gifted, and black, I guess young is a relative term because, <laughs> mm. you know, because there's a 19-year-old out there somewhere thinking I'm old, but to be young relatively or not young gifted in black during this time. I feel personally that I have a responsibility. As you know, I think everyone should feel a sense of responsibility and, uh, to understand that we are still part of this struggle. Uh, I, I describe this opus of triloquy at the top as a revolutionary classical music podcast. We're talking about a revolution, Scott. We're talking about really changing the way we think about classical music, the concert hall, classical radio, other classical mediums. And it's it's just a part of the continued struggle. Maybe not as violent as the Red Summer, as the Freedom Riots, as the sit-ins at the uh, at at all of the restaurants. It's not that. But it's a part of it, it's a different part of it. And to be young, gifted, and black during this time really fuels me. And songs like that, as made famous by Nina Simone, are a great reminder. I remember one of the earliest conversations that we had, and this was pre-triloquy. This was was before the podcast. You are interested in bringing in the younger voices, the voices of people of color, you know, black folks in, in public media and X, Y and Z. With that in mind, you know, with those goals in mind, what does the song, what does the mantra young, gifted and black mean to you? Because the young, gifted, and black are the ones who you want to see carrying the torch, right?
1: Yeah. As a matter of fact, I had an intern years and years ago when I was doing the morning show at KVNO. His name is Barry Williams. I haven't been able to find him recently, but uh, he was like one of my star students and uh, a great intern, a lot of talent. Uh, Also, Adrian Woodset. I want to shout out Adrian Woodset, who uh, moved down to, I believe orlando and he's the uh, afternoon anchor shout oh, out to nice. shout out to him and his wife and his new baby uh yeah i'm i'm very interested in it that that first desire to help the next set of broadcasters i was like whoever wants to learn it yeah. i want to help you find your voice yeah and it just so happens that a lot of the students that I feel like I had just a little hand in mentoring over the over the last year uh, uh, ten or fifteen years have happened to be black.
2: Yeah, yeah. Shout out to you. The young, gifted and black need the older generation to to carry on. And that's what today's guest um is, is- Playing a big role in Mr. Bill Doggett, uh, he's a lecturer, a performing arts marketing professional. If you know the name Adolphus Hale Stork, I do. You have Bill Doggett to thank for keeping all of those cards in order and and, and you know uh, being of assistance when it comes to his catalog. You know, Bill is one of these folks who has been out here for a long time, well before anybody was talking about DEI, diversity, any of this stuff in classical music. Bill Doggett has. Been been here really putting the work and making sure that the history will be there um, for for us to read he's 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 one of our leaders for for keeping the history of it all together and uh, I was really um, honored to have uh, him speak with me and to have his conversation with me featured uh, on Triloquy today. We talk about um, a bit of his story, um, some of his uh, opinions and experiences when it comes to black history mm-hmm. um, and music and uh, and 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 everything in between. We start by talking about comparisons to this time uh, with the past. I asked him um, what he thought. He, he lives out in California and I asked Bill, how does he compare uh, George Floyd and all those things of last summer to the 1992 Rodney King riots well he actually was able to go even further back and connected uh, with the Watts riots wow. way way back when so just an incredible resource uh, and I'm so glad to uh, share my conversation uh, with him with you today to get into that conversation we you know we were talking about earlier the general black aesthetic mm-hmm. of these movies that kind of brings your mind back to those places so I thought it would be great to transition uh, with another two uh, from Judas and the Black Messiah This is not from the score It's actually from the soundtrack uh, By the artist Her This tune is called Fight for You I love strong openings This tune definitely has that strong Percussive opening And uh, and just paints the picture Of this black history That we need to be spending so much more time with So here's Fight for You by Her And here's my conversation with Bill Doggett A historian who fights for us
0: I'm the youngest son of a very prominent uh, early civil rights movement uh, leader uh, and minister in Los Angeles, the late Reverend John Indaga Jr. Uh, he was a, friend, a close friend of Martin Luther King. He, uh, when Martin Luther King created the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1960, he also uh, sought to create a West Coast fundraising arm of, for SCLC, which was based in LA. And my father... Was the treasurer of the Western Christian uh, Leadership Conference responsible? His first uh, uh, responsibility was raising money for the Freedom Riders campaign. So he was raising money for Diane Nash and John Lewis. Uh, I'm very I'm older than I look, but I'm a little little kid looking up and around. My parents were activists. My parents were very very much activists. Beginning when they were in Pasadena around 1950. So when 1954 hit with Brown versus the Board of Education or Brown versus Topeka round separate but equal my father and pe- mother were already there. So I grew up in this and understand the challenge of of the watch rise in 1965 was was this dissonance, you know, like we talk about dissonance in music, mm-hmm. um this dissonance, social cultural dissonance uh in a somewhat segregated LA where the uh, police, where LAPD had a history of essentially uh, victimization and, and brutalization of African Americans. I mean, that had been, that that had been, and then it then a series of things were brewing, if you will, and then just like any like like the George Floyd uh, uh, murder, you know, there was a flashpoint, an arrest that that lit the Watts riots. You know, the Watts Riots are the source of the famous uh, uh, Black Power mm-hmm. uh, um, mantra, Burn, Baby, Burn. That comes from the Watts Riots of 1965. You know, and Burn, Baby, Burn became also, it was if you will, came back to life in 1992 during, in L.A. during the Watts Riots. I was living in L.A. at the time. Uh, I have a, before I came to be known as a, uh, a marketing agent and publicist for Black Composers, my first career was in photography. So I was uh, right there and at the height of my career uh, in 19, between 19, I'm going to say 90 to about 95. Uh, and yeah, I remember, yeah, it was pretty intense. But, but you know, the, the, the bigger point is that we have, we have to look at uh, retrospectively and then also today look at the through line from the watch Riots to the 1992 Rodney King riots, to George Floyd, there's a there's a through line, you know, where the challenge is, how do we as African Americans get respect? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm actually also referencing in that, you know, Aretha Franklin from 1967, her you know respect R E S P E C T has a connection. Uh, I mean I'm I'm being you know more light on it, but I'm saying the, the metaphorically and figuratively the idea of respect uh, is a challenge to black lives through history I mean I mean there's a whole lot I could say from of course you know the whole issue with policing in the black community is actually policing of slave communities yeah you know black men have been, the bad guys in the runaway slave advertising and, and all the moving depictions of the bad slave, those are always men. Nat Turner was an evil runaway slave. You know, Denmark Vesey was an evil runaway slave. You know, Rodney King was considered, you know, uh, a uh, not a he's not a runaway slave, but he's he's a off his he's brain. a out of the box, you know, non conforming right, right. Negro who should know better. So he therefore must be punished, and again, George Floyd, the same. So there's a through line, and it comes actually, uh, you know, I mean, 1992 uh, L.A. LA uh, Rodney King riots is one point in the um, in the line, or, you know, uh, of, uh, I want to say, into, not to trajectory, but I would say in the, yeah, I would say basically, for lack of a better term, in the line, the historical line, you know, uh, going from point A to point Z, um, and but there's so much more to that.
2: So you not only understand this line, you have lived it. It must, yes. have, it must have been so frustrating for you last summer to see this newfound attention being, play, uh, being paid to, to to black equity in the arts and even across the board.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and it's been going on since forever. But, you know, in particular, you know, since what is it, 2013 with uh, Travon. Martin uh, and then and Ferguson and forward, you know, and Tamir Rice, I mean, you know, it's, it's madness. It's really madness. Um, And it, and, and while we must be fair, you know, uh, there is Sandra Bland and there are others, but like in the runaway slave situation and the slave punishment is mostly men. It's, there was some kind of issue cross-culturally across Mm -hmm. the generations what is it it that white people and specifically white men this issue they have with black maleness you know i mean because that's what really is that's the through line Mm -hmm. i mean that's Mm -hmm. from nat turner to rodney king to george floyd they're all connected
2: of course, still acknowledging the tragedies surrounding folks like Breonna Taylor. and, and Yes, other women, of course. Um, always acknowledging that, you know, we, when we think about reactions to those uh, to those events, you know, of course, activism comes to mind and activism can be so many different things, as we've learned um, since May and before. What does what does activism look like to you in, in your field and the work that you do?
0: Oh, that um, simply I am. <laughs> I've been known as the activist. Um, uh, apparently, well, what is it to me? It is about uh, being at the table, and it's also about uh, being a quarterback, if you will. Um, since we're the Super Bowl is coming, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's about it's about messaging and leading. Um, I am grateful to have this background in music, very deep, unusual background in music. Uh, which is enhanced by the fact that I grew up in a musical family. My mother was a teena- as a teenager in North Philadelphia was a huge fan of Marian Anderson. Hmm. My father was uh, in as a late teenager, uh, right after we finished, I think, Central High School in, in Philadelphia in 1936. He was at massbaum Conservatory of Music, which is the was the lesser known uh, version of Curtis. Uh, he was in classical flute and in uh, as tenor sex He 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 got a scholarship. He was at the top of his class, but yet because the color bar existed for Negro or colored classically trained musicians in 1930s Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was told, "Oh, you know, why don't you apply, you know, uh, to play for Duke Ellington or for Count Basie? That's where Negro men." Mm-hmm. Who are musically try and go, and that was the case in many cases. But the active, but to the point about the activism, um, the activism comes out of that legacy that my parents brought through into my young life. You know, we're taking. I mean, well, we've already talked about the the uh, political and civic engagement of my parents, but also the music engagement wa- was very much a part of that, and very importantly so. Marion Anderson, Roland Hayes, Paul mm-hmm. Robeson, all use their artistic excellence and their voice and their gift with that as messengers for human rights and for and for african American dignity uh and the quest for freedom and and voting rights, et cetera, and so forth so yeah, so activism comes is you know i mean i've I come out of that tradition um and uh, I'm grateful that I have emerged and more so emerging since the death of George Floyd as a needle in the haystack. Um, I've been told by several uh, well-known African-American opera and concert singers on the stage today that, you know, there are no black uh, male uh, publicists or marketing agents (laughs) in classical music in the States. Um, You know, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'll just leave it there. I mean, sure. I, could, I could get political, but I'll just say, I think you get I think you get the idea.
2: Sure. So so we'll take it musical uh, for a bit. You know, uh, we, we've talked about um, the Black Swan recordings uh, on my show before. You know, considering your background and your understanding of the heritage as, as you've laid out, you must have had such a visceral reaction to listening to it for the first time.
0: Sure. Yeah. In fact, uh, I am uh, in the midst of being, quote, the Black Scholar on a uh, Black Swan 100th anniversary or centennial uh, podcast that's in development uh, with some people in New York City. Yeah, um, the Black Black Swan Record Company is a product of Harry Pace, an African-American entrepreneur originally from Atlanta, close friend and cohort of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, as well as um, W.C. Handy. His idea was to create a record label, seeing what was going on with the, you know, with the transition from live stage vaudeville stage, uh, which you know, in many cases featured minstrelsy. Minstrelsy at the turn of the century was the runaway obsession of white America for entertainment. But of course, minstrelsy was very, you know, degradatory. You know, was degradatory or derogatory, I should say. Excuse me. Uh, of everything that was about African American and African identity um, so he created this label um, to be a showcase for african-american talent. I and I'm, I'm just very honored to you know research more of what he did even though his label was short-lived because of the the racism in the field around recording and around a black person coming into a the field which was dominated by white people um, you know, but, but Pace did something really important. Um, you know, he established the, he set the record, if you will. He set the record, established the, the level of understanding that there was a marketplace for recordings focused for African-American consumer and demographics. It is his work that leads to the development by 1925 by Columbia, by Paramount, by uh, Jeanette, you know, this idea of the race record series. Mm-hmm. But the race record series really comes out of the legacy of the Black Swan record company of Harry Pace. This was based in Harlem from 19, I believe, 1921 to about 1924. It went out of business by 19, sadly, by 1925 because Harry Pace ran into systemic racism in distribution channels he couldn't get his records distributed in traditional channels so that they would be able to compete but what he did do was something really fabulous which was he looking at this drama went and created a marketing campaign essentially that embraced the black communities all across the country so he hired Um, He hired people as salesmen, like the young Rutgers uh, undergrad, Paul Robeson, was a summer salesman for Black Swan Records. He hired all manner of people involved with the Pullman Porters. Uh, organization, so railroad people uh, all across the country. I mean, it was an amazing marketing campaign. Also newspapers, etc. But uh, but the but you know act. But listening to these recordings is just really significant. Why? Because it's not only a legacy of really the first African American uh, owned and produced record company, but also it it is the manifestation of a man who had an idea to document black. Voices and black artistic excellence, both in jazz and blues, and in particular in classic in classical classically trained um in, or I'd just say simply revise that and say in classical training mm-hmm. uh, you know his record company is the first to document the first recording of by an african american classically trained singer in opera the, Antoinette Garnes was made possible by Harry Pace and his Black Swan record company. Karanome, the very famous soprano aria from Rigoletto, was recorded, I believe, in 1922 uh, on the, on the red-color uh, concert Black Swan uh, series. It opens it, if you will. Um, and she, Antoinette Garnes, realizes the dream that Ciceretta Jones, who had... You know, previously been the 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 mother of all African American classically trained uh, opera singers. That it, you know, she never she herself, Cicerita John, excuse me, uh, never made a sound recording. Although she was right there at the dawn of recorded sound. But it is Anthony Garnes that did make, uh, you know, that 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 realized the dream is what I call it. Uh, and that's significant because when you listen to this recording of a just an outstanding singer, and the first african-american singer to be part of a main stage opera company the chicago grand opera she was on their roster in 1920 21 and 22 i mean and you look fast forward to the legacy of lean Team price yeah this this endeavor this black swan record company even though short-lived was very significant to the To the larger architecture of black presence in the classical performing arts and in the performing arts in general.
2: One of the unfortunate things, though, you know, despite what Black Swan set in order, is the fact that. Of many, you know, many recordings of black classical music these days just aren't in uh, in a in a in a critical mass. You know, one of the challenges I'll, I'll I'll sometimes say excuses, but one of the challenges of folks specifically in broadcast is that the recordings are not there. Um, is this further manifestation of that systemic racism that, that you were referring? Yes.
0: To? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, I will. I don't see. I I think you might want to cut cut and paste some of this. Um, you will look at. You know, you look at. Good Lord. Uh, let's go way back. So the challenge. Yes, it is, and it starts way back. So William Grant Still. And I'm fortunate as an archivist and a specialist in race and performing arts to have the first recordings of excerpts of William Grant Still, uh, in commercial recordings. So the Lenox Avenue Suite uh the afro american symphony you know there's no in in his during the time when these were being premiered and being written about and talked about between 1930 to 1935 there were no complete recordings of the symphonies you know, Florence Price was at the Chicago Symphony, you know, had her music showcased at the Chicago Symphony. William Grant Still had his his, his music showcased both by Leopold Stokowski at the Philadelphia Orchestra and then also, I think, at the Rochester. I think the right. Afro-American yep. Symphony is at the Rochester uh, uh, Philharmonic. Um, but there were no recordings made until the mid to the late 30s, the early 40s, and not of the complete work, only of a movement. Hmm. I have all of the Still uh, I have a complete document of still an early recorded sound, including, very importantly, uh, and again the the this idea of connecting the dots and the law lo- the, the the reach back uh, uh, that Harry Pace has had. Harry Pace hired William Grant Still, the young composer, as his music director for his record label. Wow. So I have recordings of him. Doing his arrangements uncredited, and leading the Black Swan Symphony Orchestra, the first—it's a recording orchestra, but you know, a studio orchestra. But it's the first documentation of black classically trained orchestra, or orchestral performers coming together on a record. So, but so that's great. But the challenge. Fast forward to your to your question. Uh, is yes, there is this incredible. Uh, I would say in recent times, uh, meaning in the '90s, the late '90s, and the two, 2000s, really more so, that African American artists and artistry is has been lacking in terms of record labels signing uh, African Americans. For example, Janae Bridges mm-hmm. uh, is yet to. I mean, how is it possible that she has not already been signed and there's not already two or three CDs out of her? I mean, DG, Deutsche Grammophon should have signed her a long time, or Decca, but they they are actively signing white, or Chinese, or or you know, or Russian mm-hmm. uh, singers uh, and pianists, as you well know. I and I and I have to uh, give full disclosure here. So I'm a cellist. Uh, in my um, uh, high school through college, I was principal cellist when I'm, I was an undergraduate at Georgetown University, uh, and I also before that was. Uh, fortunate to know a lot as a teenager and to work during the summers uh, at one of the leading classical music record stores during the LP era. So, mm-hmm. um, and I worked with John Bruce Yeh, who was also from LA at the time. He's now, he's been what for 40 years, the principal clarinetist of the Chicago Symphony. So, you know, there's been this interesting history. So, I've had this background in music and being able to see you know, uh, the politics that you're speaking about. And, yes, yeah. the politics have always been there, you know, uh, but now they're even more so. I mean, I, I you know, thank God for Noxos, essentially. Yeah. Noxos yeah. has created a an even playing ground, if you will. Um, but, but you know, why isn't it? Why, why haven't many of the artists that we know that are outstanding, why haven't they been signed by Sony or by Decca London or by Deutsche Grammophon, you know? I mean, what's that about? You know, I mean, I, you know, it just—it seems, it, it, and, it, and the tragedy of that is that uh, unlike what Harry Pace did back in 1921, 22, 23, there is no document, you know, unless you self-create, you, you know, on your own record label or you, you drop, you know, you do this whole digital thing, you know, online uh, or, you, or you create, you know, with others. You know, a a, um, a crowdfunding, if you will, a crowdsourced uh, record label, which I think, you know, I think there is. Um, uh, what would I say? I I think there is reason uh, to do such. You know, uh, I mean, Harry Pay started it back in Harlem at the dawn of the Harlem Renaissance. You know, and certainly Barry Gordy did that with Motown. Mm-hmm. Um, but and certainly there are enough people <laughs> in our mix and our network today that could pool their monies to create a similar you know, entrepreneurial network um, for the documentation of all this fantastic talent. Absolutely, and as that
2: infrastructure is being built across Black communities, as you said, thank God for folks like Naxos. I think that's uh, the the first way I was introduced to the music of Adolphus Hale Stork. I think anyone who mm-hmm. knows you knows uh, your affinity for uh, Mister Hale Stork uh, and his music. What what was your introduction uh, to to him and his music?
0: Um, I first I I first came to know Adolphus Hale Stork's music. By being a presenter uh, at the 2012 uh, African American Art Song Alliance conference at University of California Irvine, on um, you know that was, I would say, um, a the brainchild and the and the the um, you know glorious um, gift to all of us by Dr. Daryl Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was. This is a. Um, I wouldn't say every year, this is every like every five years, there's a conference uh, of this, and they're coming together from all over the world of singers, composers, uh, academics, scholars, people like myself. Um, And that's where I first heard his music in terms of his art songs. Um, And then um, I think the word got out uh, to him. Uh, I was not directly involved with him in 2012, but he heard about my connection. And my work with Anthony Davis mm-hmm. from the 2012, 13, 14 period. So by the second African American Arts Song Alliance conference in, in, 2000, in 2017, uh, where I had made you know my name was a little bit more known, um, he actually you know we, were, we had been friendly um, uh, during before that time, and I think he was taking more note of me. Uh, and then by I think I would have to say by 2019. Yeah, uh, you know, he inquired about you know what's involved. Um, he needed, he he felt that he could benefit from my services. So you know, I'm grateful. That's how that's how I came to know Alfredo's Elstore.
2: Yeah, and he's definitely one of the pillars in, yes. from, from, from my perspective, you know, a living composer, definitely embodying a lot of that contemporary aesthetic, but in a way, you know, one of the OGs, one of the people who've, who've been here and, and have been trying for a long time, you know.
0: Yeah, I can speak to the, to that. I should I should chime in and say, so it's a great honor uh, in in this through line of storytelling that I've been making, I've been sharing, you know, to... Uh, it's a great honor to be tapped to represent uh, perhaps one of the most important and renowned living black composers. Uh, Certainly he's, uh, I think he is turning 80 in April. Uh, There's a lot coming uh, between April 2021 to April 2022. Um, And his story is also quite interesting. Um, I think the one thing that your listeners should be very aware of is that he is, he, his music, you know, overall is a great storyteller and it's a great messenger in many ways for African-American history and particularly for Black Lives. In particular, in particular there, is, there is, of course, the epithet uh, for a man who dreamed, an orchestral work that's mm-hmm. dedicated to the life and legacy of Martin Luther King. But there's also a very important large choral work called None Made My Vow, which uses uh, flashpoints of African-American history uh, with narration. Uh, it's a very powerful piece. He is doing, excuse me, he is uh, in progress uh, to be uh, world premiered in March of 2022. Uh, the much anticipated, talked about George Floyd, Requiem Cantata, will be, that will be happening. That's a large work for a large orchestra, large chorus, tenor, uh, baritone, and mezzo-soprano. Um, so he's and then, and then not just that. <laughs> it was supposed to have already uh, premiered digitally, um, or was yeah, scheduled yesterday originally to to premiere digitally. Uh, but the Harlem Chamber Players has commissioned uh, Adolphus for a very special piece, a chamber music piece uh, called Tulsa, 1921. Mm-hmm. For if I did not say, it's for uh, mezzo and uh, I think string quartet. Um, that will be uh premiering i'm going to say somewhere in June instead and what the good news about the legacy and and the perception of Adolfus Elstorks um le- uh, work and the importance of it the Library of Congress has now come on board as being a co-sponsor for Tulsa 1921 so yeah you know, it's it's you know for me uh, i mean it's huge i mean uh, because It also gives me, um, how would I say, Uh, it validates decades of passion, background, knowledge, uh, you know, of what I do, and it validates me in a way that where I have had challenges uh, talking to white artistic administrators, uh, you know, They had, and I have to say this, and I should go on record for saying this. You know, I had, I've had some wonderful pitch meetings with. In fact, one in particular, a very famous orchestra. In the, well, you know, I have to say it. You know, uh, San Francisco Symphony. You know, I met with the entire artistic administration uh, people. You know, I'm not coming from another orchestra as a, you know, having a history of being functionally as an artistic administrator. You know, uh, you know, working, you know, with that particular orchestra and I'm not a conductor, and I'm not a composer, and I will say, I think it was a positive meeting. I mean, it was a great meeting, but I have to say this, and this is typical of my journey and my challenge. It was as if I was a dog that talked. They had never seen or encountered an African-American male, non-artistic administrator, you know, formally, non-composer, non-conductor that had this deep repertoire knowledge that could, you know, I can curate programming. I know mm-hmm. how to put music together. I know, you know, I know more than the Greeks' Pierre Gant suite or the Bolero of <laughs> right. Ravel, you know, uh, or the Tchaikovsky first piano concerto. Yeah, I can, you know, I worked with Anthony Davis. You know, I'm actually was in charge of uh, the marketing campaign in 2013 to try to get the revival of his landmark 1986 opera Extra Life and Times of Martin. Uh, excuse me, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. Um, in time for the 2015 50th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X, we came close. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm in that on that level. Okay, we're not. I'm not just trying to get you know kids. I mean, I mean, everything is good. But I'm not trying to get school kids to go see you know, uh... you know, The Marriage of Figaro downtown. You know. Yeah. At the, at the Opera House, I'm, I'm doing much, you know, more significant work. So anyway, that's enough. I,
2: I can't help but to think that there has to be some sort of fear there. You know, you, you've mentioned Anthony yeah. Davis a couple times. I had the pleasure of uh, having him on this show. Um, and one of the pieces that you brought up uh, of Anthony Davis's, um, you know, uh, before we turn on the mics, uh, was his retelling of Amistad. And I can't help but yeah. to think about that story. You know, the um, the Africans taken over the ship the black folks taking over the concert hall. Is there, we, we've been talking about through lines, you know, is there right. a through line there from your perspective? Yeah,
0: of course, absolutely. Um, and this is also a plim, uh, polemical as in, uh, you know, contentious. Um, I think it's very important that we do. I think the challenge is is this um, going forward. Uh, and this is, this is kind of political, okay? I'm just forwarding you. So the challenge is, um, the the challenge for African American composers and for African American music, even in the post-George Floyd time period, is that the endowment demographics, the donor demographics of many of the leading orchestras in the country really are okay with a little smidging. You know, a little dab here, a little dab there uh, of African American. You know, it's fine to program and showcase uh, Chevalier St. George Mm -hmm. because he sounds, you know, like, quote, Mozart. Right. Or it's okay to um, program uh, something frequently, either during Black History Month or for Martin Luther King, you know, uh, holiday weekend but to have black music consistently throughout or have music that is is uh, more how would i say more conf- confrontational let's and i and i hate to use that word but that's really what it is for white audiences who view their concert hall as kind of their valhalla you know like uh, mm-hmm. from das Rheingold of yep. wagner that this is their sacred place you know this is you know for many of these people especially for the older, long-time uh, subscribers that are bussed in these charter buses from the suburbs into the concert halls, symphony halls that are all usually in downtown, you know, cities, On um, you know, their sacred ground is, is, is their concerts, you know, mm-hmm. the concerts of Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven and Mendelssohn, you know, Anthony Davis, you know, maybe George Walker's lyric for strings, and that is a political mm-hmm. statement on my end. Um, is okay, because that's non-confrontational. But you put together excerpts, which Anthony and I have a huge, well, I'll just say, I, I am still connected with Anthony Davis in very important ways. Um, the marketing piece for Anthony uh, of trying to get uh, not just the revival of, of, of the opera X. Ex- or the revival of Amistad. The idea that you were talking about, this of, of taking over the ship, the slave ship, is also the challenge, fast forward to the concert halls of fall, 20, fall 2021 and going into 2022, Some of these long term demographical um, participants and sustainers are not comfortable with this idea of beyond the easy comfort food black music mm-hmm. that they want or come to or used to you know i mean you know beyond the Gersh- beyond having a black pianist perform Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue or the second rhapsody or you know or or excerpts from Porgy and Bess you know it's okay for that uh, or to have black singers Yeah, you know, an all-black cast for the Beethoven, uh, you know, Ninth Symphony. That's been done. But having, you know, Anthony X, excuse me, having the Amistad Symphony of Anthony Davis or having um, any of the really brilliant but more difficult music of of Alvin Singleton for Mm -hmm. orchestra or even the outstanding, non-confrontational, gorgeous, contemporary, late 20th century symphonic poems of ollie wilson for some reason they're not willing to program that they are willing and and, and i have to be careful what i say they are willing to to and they have and you're gonna see you've already seen it and you will see it all throughout the new season coming in they will they will um excuse me, they will book and pro- program is, a, is the word I was searching for. They will program Chevalier St. Uh, uh, George, Joseph Boulogne. They will program Jesse Montgomery. They will program, um, what, who else? Maybe they might program one of the lighter works, I call, uh, of Adolphus Hale Store, sure. like uh, American Port-A-Call or right. Celebration. Uh, or, I, in fact, recently, uh, this past fall, the Baltimore Symphony, Program under Marin also programmed uh, his Baroque Suite, which is you know I mean it, there's nothing about the Baroque Suite that is non-confrontational as you that know. is even black okay <laughs> sounding so but this is a black composer so it meets their need to show diversity by programming a work by a black composer but the music that they choose to program you know does not quote rock the boat um, for their you know, for their, demo- for their endowment and their subscription demographics.
2: So what do you say to the critique that even if this music is in these spaces, it's not directly helping black people because we aren't in those spaces. We aren't in the opera house. We aren't in the concert hall. How is this helping black folks?
0: True. That is a big, uh, well, there are a couple ways to to answer that. First, the visibility is significant, Uh um, making the, from going from a state of being like Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man or The mm-hmm. Invisible Woman, which has historically been the case pre-George Floyd, except during Black History Month or except during this the annual special Martin Luther King Day concert. You know, I think the visibility is important. I think the, the most important thing is for all of these um, artistic organizations who have famously you know, presented the solidarity statements, you know, solidarity with Black Lives statements, uh, for them to go the extra mile, to go beyond Jesse Montgomery, go beyond Chevalier-St. George, to go into having more of a community engagement. and That's, that's, that's um, what do I would say, organic, you know, and long-term, not just these short one-off types of things. Black people should be included in the experience. You know, it, um, and 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 I and I will be, and I'm. I don't know what how I should say this. Um, you might have to edit this out, <laughs> but I'm going to say um, my experience as an artistic administrator, independent, uh, or you know, as an independent one uh, during the two thousand eighteen time period, lead up to the twenty nineteen uh, centennial of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Um, they were interesting. And it's, important to the, it's an important illustration to the, its overall point. So, you know, Los Angeles Philharmonic has historically not been uh, engaging or open to showcasing music by black composers. You know, I spent a lot of my high school years in student rush, getting student rush tickets for the Sunday matinees. I, I mean, I have this huge history as a teenager and as a young adult at the L.A. Phil. Um, L.A. is the home of William Grant still. William mm-hmm. Grant Still's music was rarely performed, so on the for the centennial, they decided to put together a program in tribute of William Grant Still. It was called the in tribute of William Grant Still and the Harlem Renaissance. This was uh, a concerts of Thomas of conductor Thomas Wilkins, mm-hmm. uh, who's the conductor of the Hollywood Bowl Symphony. Uh, this was his con- weekend concerts. I think it was like Thursday through Sunday, uh, February seventeenth to nineteenth, and then there was a a version of it for kids, you know. Um, I think it's called the Toyota Motor Company. It has these family concerts. Um, that was their first time. Uh, they all of those concerts. I think there were three concerts were sold out. But and and that 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 was great. And yes, during their centennial season, they actually for the first time, they found every black person that was classically trained and 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 out there to be a guest soloist. Hmm. They had never had done anything like that before. So I mean but what it was on a, some level, and, and I know this is controversial, but I have to say it, on some level it was a way of saying to their white demographic, look how liberal and look how diversity focused we are we got found we have more black people showcased during our centennial season than you've seen in the past 30, 40 years. You know, uh and it, you know and we were we are hip we're a hip now you know mm-hmm. uh, but is it more than just a one-off how many African Americans in the Los Angeles community in Watts or, or South Central were in the audiences the challenge at the Walt Disney Concert Hall with the exception of a one-time and you have to be like on the web when it hits when it drops once I think once every two weeks they have these twenty dollars. Ticket seats, you know, that open up near, you know, near time of a concert, uh, where you know the price is lower. But the challenge, and I mentioned this to the then CEO of the LA Philharmonic, who I had a de- who I had a decent rapport with, Simon Woods, who's now at, uh, heads the uh, League of you know of American orchestras. I said, you know, look, you know, there are a ton of concerts I would love to go to during your centennial season, but the price point is is it's prohibitive. We're talking about not in orchestra, but we're talking about way in the balcony, in the back. It's 65 to $70 per, per concert. Then you've got a $10 um, uh, parking fee. And if you want to get something to drink, you're looking at close to $100 per concert. I don't know how many, you know, I mean, other than professional, you know, uh, law, black lawyers, black mm-hmm. doctors, yeah. you know, that level. You know, I mean, you're not getting the community with those kinds of price points. I mean, there were like four, I I, I specifically said to Simon, I said, you know, there are like four concerts in a week and a half that are must go for me. But I didn't have $500 that I was gonna spend to drop to go to those concerts. You know, um, and then I have the, you know, I'm three hours north, so, you know, that's quite a drive, three hours down, three hours, you know, plus, you know. So this is the challenge, and to your point, this is the challenge. How do we, it's nice when the music is programmed but it must also be accessible for the community as a role modeling and a mirroring back. Mirroring. I've spoken to this about this hugely for over the past like 15 years. The mirroring. You know, there needs to be an authentic, organic engagement in this whole idea of mirroring and, and community and, and community connection to it. If you're going to create a community garden, so to speak, you mm-hmm. know. Um, the community needs to be there, and it needs to feel comfortable, and the prices need to be uh, reasonable, and the work also has to be done with the endowment demographic and the and the longtime subscription people. That all of a sudden, all these black people <laughs> are coming to the concert hall, you know, for the, not for the family concerts, but for the subscription concerts. You know that these, you know, the people are like the people who are like, well, what are all these why all of a sudden, all these black people, you know, I'm sitting next to a black person. That we need. There's work to be done there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So much work to be done. And the work that you do is a huge part of, of the work getting done. I, I really appreciate your sitting down with me. How can folks uh, find out more about you, um, about uh, what you're doing and, uh, and, and and all of those sure. things?
0: Sure. Yeah, I have actually a, a brand new website that's launching uh uh, in the next two weeks which is phenomenal which will really tell my story uh, wonderfully but until that time I have an older uh, flash well formula I have an older flash uh, based website uh, when flash was all the rage back from 2009 10 uh, and that website address is ww with I'll repeat that Uh www.bill, B-I-L-L, Dogget D-O-G-G-E-T-T, productions, with an S, dot com. That's how they can uh, reach me. There's a contact, uh, you know, contact uh, link there. So.
2: Absolutely. The, uh, we've we've said uh, Adolphus Hale Stork's name uh, several times. I know there's someone listening who has never heard any of his music. What would be your suggested starting point for the catalog of Adolphus Hale Stork as we transition out?
0: There are two Adolphus Hale Storks, as Adolphus <laughs> will tell you, and probably you'll hear this in the next uh, within the next two or three months. Uh, there's Adolphus Hale Stork, who's who's as a musician is writing. In uh, is bringing to music uh, music that he loves. He has a uh, passion for Samuel Barber. He has a passion for the English Cathedral. So that music is one thing. In, there's, and then there's the other music. There's Af- there's uh, Adolphus Hillstork as the African American Story Griot. Uh, in terms of the recorded, what's available, I have I have sound files that are not available. But I will say, if you're going to, if I'm going to introduce people to Adolphus Hillstork, specifically for his larger legacy, I'm going, to turn, I'm going to suggest that they go to SoundCloud and look for Bill Doggett, my, me, and for my SoundCloud. And there's a work called Earthrise that I have put up on SoundCloud that has just taken off. It is a work for large orchestra and double choir. It's, it was commissioned by the, in 2006 by the Cincinnati Symphony May Festival, uh, as a healing uh, work uh, in response to the, 2000s, to the 2000 uh, Cincinnati ri- riots. So like you were, you were mentioning the 1992 Rodney King riots, uh, unfortunately there was no commission uh, by the L.A. Philharmonic to create a piece of healing for Los Angeles. But in Cincinnati, in response to their riots, uh, there was a piece in Adolphus Hill Stork was the composer and it's a wonderful work it's all about community and creating community uh, in its DNA uh, are two specific themes the uh, old to Ode to joy from Beethoven's Ninth, the you know Allah mentioned werden and Bruda all men should be or will become brothers and then the old Appalachian American folk tune of draw the sacred circle closer Mm. And in this, so it's a really so the musically is really interesting, but also the choreography of the performance is interesting. Where you have one choir on one end of the concert hall, which is all white, and another choir on not all the way on the other but they're they're separated uh, physically. But one is white, one is black, and they both come back come together by the end of the performance of the piece. So it's very visual is very symbolic and uh that would be the work I would uh that's available to check out online uh that I would recommend first
2: God, Bill will tell you himself that he's been around for a little while and has been trying and been a part of the struggle for a long, long, long time. I know that you talk about um, being tired. You know, I talk about being tired. We all talk about being tired. But the work has to continue. And, um, and, and through it all, we have to press on. I feel like Bill is going to be remembered as one of those folks who really helped, who was mm. a part of the struggle. Do you feel like uh, you're there? You've seen a lot, you know, at 50 years old, you've seen a lot through, through the decades. Do you feel like you can fairly describe yourself as being one of the folks who was trying, not one of the folks who was allowing, I'll say?
1: I'm getting there. Yeah. Just like um, those articles that I brought up earlier, you have to acknowledge that it's a process. Yeah. Never ends. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. Don't look at it as just something like you know. When I finally get to this point, because there's going to be something after it. So I would put myself in the category of someone who's uh, constantly taking the steps. Yeah, I'm, I'm constantly working.
2: And I feel that way about myself, too. A lot of people sort of see me, perceive me as, you know, this guru of whatever I'm not. I'm just a guy with a microphone and who does a lot of reading and a lot of listening. And I'm and I'm ready to keep on. You know, I think about you. I think about Bill Doggett. I think about, hell, I'm 33 years old. Do I got 30 more years of this in me?
1: Yes, I do. How about this? I I hope that in the future, people will look at me and say something nice about that. Would they say that he was... Yeah, that old Blankenship. He was, he was trying to be an accomplice.
2: Yeah, and there's some folks who are not doing that who we're gonna address <laughs> right now. Uh-oh. Here's the fourth movement. Hi, Mr. John Oliver. We are the viola section of the Boston Pops. We were so excited to hear you and Stephen Colbert discussing our fabulous instrument. We think that 2021 should be the year of the viola. It couldn't be any worse than 2020.
1: Hi, John. This is your official invitation to come join us at the Boston Pops. Your destiny and your viola await you here. This This is the year, John.
2: So that was a member of the Boston Pops viola section who you heard from when uh, I originally said, Scott, on Twitter that I was going to go on the Boston Pops website and name each and one of the violas concerning what I'm about to talk about. I won't do that because I'm not feeling so dramatic today. But but long story short, there's the Internet. John Oliver, who Mm -hmm. is a, how would you describe John Oliver? A news person? He's a satirist. Okay, I've literally sat down and watched one episode, so I I don't really, I can't offer a fair perspective on the work that he does. I know the work that he does is not as a musician, but apparently, it got out that John Oliver was is a violist and someone who you know can can play decently. So the Boston Pops Orchestra put together this whole produced thing. This is not a cell phone video. This is a produced thing with the viola section, the all white viola section all, all note of the Boston Pops Orchestra and Keith Lockhart, their conductor, inviting John Oliver to join their section. They even had a chair with the viola there. OK, maybe this is in jest. I think, Scott, well, this is my first question. We'll, we'll, we'll go through this this way. If John Oliver said, OK, sure, I would love to join. Do you think they would at least let John play one concert? One, do you think there would be one concert that the Boston Pops would have John Oliver in their viola section? At least. I don't see the point of it. You don't see the point of letting him in the section? I don't. Why not? Well, well answer the question. If he... Rain Wilson plays bassoon. <clears throat> okay. Answer the question. Okay. If John, <laughs> If John Oliver accepted the offer and said sure I'll join do you think the Boston Pops would have him in the section at least for a concert probably okay okay that is the answer to my question (laughs) if I if I go to the Boston Pops Scott and say I'm a fine sorry I hit the mic I am a fine violist who like John Oliver you have not heard play a damn thing do you think they'll let me play a concert with them no okay So what is my issue here? That we will throw blind auditions, so-called excellence, all of this out the window, even if just in jest, When we're talking about somebody like John Oliver, they will do this. They will open up that conversation. They will produce a full-fledged video with the the viola section of the orchestra all dressed up in concert, you know, for for that, you know, oh, let's invite him to the section, but won't do a modicum of that for the sake of so-called diversity in that ensemble. Am I reaching?
1: are they let me ask you this are they are they talking about doing this for one concert or they're saying hey john you want to come and play with the boston pops that's for- what it yes that's period.
2: what it said that's what it said period I, it, the, he has an open invitation to join the Boston Pops, no, whether it's for no, one concert, no, Scott, no, no, or no, forever. No, I don't think no, that's no, the no, point. No. I don't think that matters. The point is they're willing to open up the conversation of allowing someone into the section for the sake of a fucking joke or whatever. Even, even you know, considering that I think they would take him off on it and let him join the section, but they won't do any of that for for. For what we're talking about, orchestras being too white, they're being non-diversity. I don't know anything about a fellowship or nothing with the Boston Pops, but I know they'll let John Oliver have a seat. Am I reaching? As I asked before, am I reaching? I don't think so. Okay, there we go. So uh, Boston Pops... (laughs) Wait, is that that what you were expecting (laughs) me to say? I just wanted wanted to know because there were folks who say I was reaching and then there are folks who agree with my
1: perspective. One concert and he's... There for the first half. Okay, that's cute. All right, you might have sold a few tickets.
2: But that's what I'm saying. They won't even do that much for for us,
1: though. I know, They they won't
2: even let us do that. But like I said, I don't think it matters if it's for a season, if it's forever, or if it's for one fucking rehearsal, Scott. They're I'm, willing to open up the conversation about letting someone into the section for this,
1: but we won't do it for diversity. I, I understand what you're I'm just trying to get an idea of what the <laughs> parameters of the deal was sure. so I can gauge my outrage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, so you mad too now?
2: Well, oh. that, oh, yeah, now you with me.
1: <laughs> no, I don't. All right, so I will go on record here and say, Garrett, I don't think that was a reach.
2: Okay, okay, thank you. There. I
1: I appreciate that. To the next, to the next. so
2: Boston Pops Orchestra and Keith Lockhart. I'm disappointed. Our jokes aside, all of this thing called triloquy aside, you are willing to have this conversation and to produce a video. And I I, I underscore that point just to say this isn't somebody with their cell phone trying to be cute. This is a Boston Pops video production inviting this violist who they have not heard, who has not auditioned, who was not behind a part of the blind audition, S, Y and Z on stage you won't even consider that conversation for something that actually matters and that could benefit your organization and the entire art form that's my frustration with it i i feel like i'm done with this rant but i hope folks see my point that they will that they will have the conversation the institutions will have the conversation of inclusion when it means one thing but not when it means another thing and that's that okay so to <laughs> the the second triloquy so um, go when ahead did, When did we start Having double-barreled Triloquies here when, when Oh that's my laptop Sorry When When we needed to
1: <laughs> Because right.
2: there's a lot Going on Everybody was in my inbox About something That went down At TMEA And if you don't know That's the Texas Music Educators Association What I want folks To understand Is that this Is a huge thing This isn't some Mini-conference Some little corner Of classical music This is the Biggest music education educators conference in the country where thousands of people are submitting proposals for um, for panels, for presentations, for tips on music education. And one came, I wish I knew the name of the person who presented this. Uh, I'll shout out Rob Deemer who screenshotted uh, these pictures for me. Uh, the, the presentation is called Building Better Bassoons with the subtitle, how to choose the right students. Um, Scott, how about you go ahead and and read the list of bullet points here concerning how to choose the right students. Intangible
1: characteristics, self-motivation, intelligence, socioeconomic status, prepackaged musical knowledge, stable home. I appreciate that very lighthearted read because it really pisses me
2: off l- looking at that. What do you think about the list you just read? Do you, do you, well, yeah, I won't, even, I won't even lead you anywhere. What do you, what do you think about what you just by, read?
1: By several of these things under here, I would not be a, a good bassoonist. I would not be a, I would not be a good musician. Self-motivation, ding. Uh, pre-packaged musical knowledge, I don't have that. What's a stable home? Define stable home. Thank you. Thank you. Intelligence and In, uh, about what?
2: Let's go over to the next slide. There, there's more than one slide here. <laughs> okay, this is a presentation after all. Under uh under what we're looking at now so what Scott just read those list of things with smaller bullet points expounding on those very uh, particular points so I'll, I'll read one here under the point of socioeconomic status when it comes to building better bassoonists and how to choose the right students it says <laughs> oh that a student uh, that we should never be prohibitive but that we should take into account Um, socioeconomic status when it comes to buying reeds for bassoonists, lessons. Now, Scott, we sit up here all the damn time talking about equity and what that means. This is the opposite of that is saying take into account your students ability to buy reads and pay for lessons when selecting those students. How about you go under into some of these small bullet points under uh, the descriptions of a stable home when it comes to uh, selecting a, a student and teaching. Oh, my your students. God. Do I go have read to for
1: us? Do they live in an apartment or house? Are they buying or renting? Are the parents transferred for work often? I'm. I'm staggered by this list. Are, are lessons a possibility both from a financial perspective and a mobility... Pr- is the home open to home... Pre- I, I don't know what that last one means, but I'm, I'm floored. I am absolutely agog at this. I began by saying that the Texas Music Educators
2: Association is oh, the Texas. biggest in the country. Was I saying Tennessee? I meant to say Texas. No,
1: I just went, oh... oh
2: um, It's the biggest and it's national. It's not just, you know, folks from everywhere come to this. So this means for this presentation to have been okayed and to be in front of people's eyes, our eyes. Wow. A lot of people had to approve this. A lot of people had to be like, okay, well, this is fine. Okay, yeah, this is this is with our standards and and uh, and and what we what what, what we're going to put out there. I'm bringing this up because it is yet another example of how much work we have to do. Not only did an individual put this funky little PowerPoint presentation together, but folks looked at it and said it was okay. We got a lot of work to do and everyone has to be a part of it because this is out here. There is somebody who read this and said, finally, someone is finally having the real conversation about how to see even Radar is upset, shaken. Somebody is finally having the real conversation as far as how to pick bassoon. So somebody was affirmed. Somebody was affirmed by
1: this. So to be a good bassoonist, you have to be self-motivated, intelligent, come from a good uh, economic background your family you have to have some knowledge some musical knowledge <laughs> before you even start i guess and uh on top of that is stable home um i'll link this in the in the description for y'all but i'm i'm anyway I'm shame on I'm you lost. whoever
2: wrote this i, I'm I and i'm and i'm going to find out because you know how the people are sky i am going All to that. find out i and y'all better hope that I forget to bring it back next week when I find out. Did they say any
1: did they say any of this out loud?
2: They must they must have. They must have for this to be a whole person. Anyway, I don't I don't want to spend any more time here, but it's some real violence happening out there in music education. Everybody needs to know about it, and everyone needs to figure out if what you are going to do to prevent this and to quell this sort of ignorance out here because you sitting here smirking Scott but there is a black sorry I'm, I'm slamming the table because I'm mad there is a black girl a black boy out there, 11, 12 years old, who is not going to get access to this because some motherfucker said, oh, well, I don't think they have a stable home. And at TMEA one year, I saw this presentation where you really have to pay attention to that when it talks about training new Do they new move so, Yeah. yeah so, Do they so, rent? So maybe maybe we won't um, select that student. That, that's how that stuff manifests. And that's violent. Mm. That is completely violent.
1: And on top of it all, the their picture of the bassoon sucks. <laughs>
2: Ooh, yeah, so yeah, to, um, to laugh, to keep from cursing. Anyway, you said a double beer, truly We actually have one more. Go ahead, and <laughs> go ahead, Scott, and give us the Senate
1: breakdown, because a lot of people were talking about that last oh, week.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Apparently, Trump didn't break any laws. Get, give it to us, Scott. Well, how do you feel?
1: Well, keep in mind that President Clinton was impeached over a alleged or supposed lie, lie over uh, getting, his sex- suck. A a saying, sex- getting his dick sucked just saying getting his dick sucked all right go ahead you do it <laughs> go ahead go ahead but uh having uh insurrectionists run rampant through the halls of our capital and white feces and uh steal things it's not break white things, feces go on and then the stark image of people of color cleaning that up uh you can't deny that but um, I, I want, I would want to ask a question if I could talk to any elected leader at a town hall, if they would act, if they would let me have the microphone to ask the question, it would be, what do you say to the people out there who have no confidence in any of your ability to lead? And I am people. When you say, what do you say to people who say I am people?
2: Because at this point, I, I, I feel I don't like I can't this, trust it. No, Goddamn.
1: no. No, neither do I. I mean, uh, and and for some, for the, the minority leader to step out and admonish the former president and then say, but I vote to acquit. I mean, this was the guy that kept the trial from proceeding while he was in office. And then afterwards went, well, he's out of office. And does it not just
2: make your blood boil just thinking about the smirk on Don Jr.'s face? You know, dad got acquitted for all this because he was there, too. I think they all need to be going to jail because he was there as well, much less Trump, all of those cronies. Scott, I have been all the way behind bars. I have been all the way in jail for stuff. Far less violent than inciting an insurrection. I had to pay for my little shit that I was doing back in the day, but we got powerful white men who get people, you know, five people died. Mm-hmm. He has the blood of five, pe- much less the 500,000 people who are dead now because Two of Two committed
1: suicide.
2: That blood is on his head and, and nothing is going to happen. So we're just going to, we're just going to let it roll.
1: Maybe in Georgia, maybe in the Southern district of New York, he has a, he has a mountain of other legal things that are stacking up. Um, the plausible de- deniability is gone, though, you guys. the This whole idea of everybody uses the word fight. Everybody talks about battle. The former president did this over weeks and months. It was a slow motion thing that happened way back in the fall when the first reporter had whatever idea it was to say, will you honor the results of the election? Right. Right. <laughs> That's where it started. This was a slow-motion coup that happened in plain sight. So time this
2: to the arts. Time this to music. (laughs) I can't. You saw the level of organization, the level of accompliceship. Yes. We saw from those police. Yes. We saw from all of the the Trumpers and, and everything that went into that moment under their leader. We saw that. That's the kind of dedication. That's the kind of just energy we need on the side of equity in music, you know. I, I'm I'm still looking at this image of this slideshow you want me to close from, that? from TMEA. There is real shit going on out here. Real organization against equitable practices in the arts, and it's not it's not going to go away. It is not going to go away. Just like those seventy million. Whatever people who uh, voted for Trump, you Mm -hmm. know, this second time around, the folks who do not want to see equity in the arts are very much there and aren't going anywhere. We have to really be a part of this actively. And I want folks to really understand that. Are you really, 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 really on the right side of history? Or are you someone who is standing on the sidelines and hoping that things will go the way you want them to go so that you can claim that you were a part of it? Mm-hmm. You know, Scott, uh, yesterday as we were recording this was Valentine's Day, and I saw a lot of people, you know, trying to make these big, bold statements about their significant others and uh, everything that they're doing out here for the cause. One of, one of these days... Uh, We're going to have, I'm going to invite Dale on and we're going to have the interracial dating relationship within this work that I do. And as vocal and and as outspoken as I am, (sighs) Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave the folks with this today i'm reading his twitter bio it says aspiring race traitor treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity that's the level i'm on that's the level that the white people in my peripheral are on are you on that level i'll I'll let you think about it see you next time
1: Dell's bio says that yeah